Welcome to the Critique Journal Club podcast for March 2018. We've had a bit of a break over Christmas and February as we've waited for all the big intensive care conferences to occur in Europe and America and now we're back and there is a lot to talk about. So let's start with steroids in septic shock. First of all, we have the adrenal trial that was published in the New England Journal by the ANZIX CTG. So in the 80s, trials reported an increase in mortality associated with methylprednisone, 30 milligrams per kilogram, and as a result, the use of glucocorticoids was frowned upon. In the early 2000s, two RCTs reported conflicting results on mortality, with hydrocortisone 200 milligrams per day in septic shock. However, both showed earlier shock resolution with hydrocortisone. However, reports of adverse events such as infection, metabolic and neuromuscular events have added uncertainty. So that brings in Adrenal, an international pragmatic double-blind parallel group RCT that randomized 3,800 adult critically ill patients with septic shock that was uh, two or more SERS criteria treated with inotrope or vasopressors for a minimum of four hours and within 24 hours to hydrocortisone 200 milligrams per day or placebo. Now they were stratified by center and medical or surgical admission. In terms of baseline demographics, the groups were similar, 62 years, median Apache 2 over 24, 31% surgical. The primary source of sepsis was respiratory in the medical group and abdominal in the surgical group. Treatment allocation was received in 99.7% of patients and adherence to protocol occurred in greater than 95%. The primary outcome was 90-day mortality, and it was powered for a uh, 90% power to detect a 5% difference from a baseline rate of 33%. The result, 27.9% 90-day mortality in the hydrocort group, 28.8% in the placebo group. That's an absolute difference of 0.9%, odds ratio of 0.95, p-value of 0.5, so no difference. In terms of secondary outcomes, uh, the primary outcome was reported in six specified subgroups and there was no difference. The hydrocortisone group had a higher mean arterial pressure uh, from day one to seven. They also had shorter time to shock resolution, three versus four days, and that was significant. A shorter time to ICU discharge, 10 versus 12 days and that was also significantly different and perhaps very important to many of us a two-day shorter duration of ICU care. There was no difference in days alive and out of ICU. Um, Hydrocortisone was also associated with a shorter duration of initial ventilation, six versus seven days. Um, There was no difference in shock, recurrence, time to hospital discharge, days alive, and hospital-free renal replacement therapy rate and use and rate of new infection. Uh, blood transfusion use was lower in the hydrocore group, 37 versus 42%, odds ratio of 0.82, PO 0.004. And uh, overall adverse events were higher in the hydrocore group, 1.1 versus 0.3%, P 
p-value of 0.009. So, this landmark study tells us that adults with septic shock requiring vasopressors for at least four hours do not receive a survival benefit from the administration of hydrocortisone 200 milligrams per day within 24 hours of shock. This was consistent across subgroups. However, there were interesting secondary outcomes with hydrocortisone associated with more rapid shock resolution, a two-day decrease in ICU stay, lower transfusion rate, shorter ventilation time, uh, but no, all, no overall difference in hospital length of stay, other organ failures or infections. So how will this be interpreted? Do we stop giving hydrocortisone and sepsis altogether as it doesn't improve survival or duration of hospital stay? Or do we think those secondary outcomes, particularly decreased ICU length of stay, are enough to support ongoing use? Or do we wait for a secondary analysis or future studies to come out? But we can't consider this study alone, because at the same time, also in the New England Journal of Medicine, we've got the CRICS triggered network trial, hydrocortisone plus fludrocortisone for adults with septic shock, done by, uh, led by Didier Anand. Now, they introduced this study by saying um, one-third of physicians believe corticosteroids improve survival in septic shock, one-third believe that they do not, and one-third are unsure. Sounds like a lot of things in life. Um, they, we know that we've had the adrenal trial, um, and this trial adds to the evidence, and it throws in zygris because they test the hypothesis that hydrocortisone plus fludrocortisone therapy or activated protein C would improve the clinical outcomes of patients with septic shock. Many of you may have thought we would never see Zygris again. They conducted a four parallel group 2 by 2 factorial design study, that is hydrocortisone 50 QID IV plus fludrocortisone 50 mics daily enterally, um, and then they had activated protein C, uh, the combination of the three drugs and placebo, so 2 by 2 factorial design. They enrolled over seven years and 34 centres with the trial suspended twice in October 11 and May 12, uh, October 11 to May 12 when Zygris was withdrawn and July 14 to October 14 to check quality of trial agents and distribution of serious adverse events. After Zygris was withdrawn from the market, the trial continued with a two-group parallel design, and the analysis compared patients who received hydrocort plus fludrocort with those who did not, that is, the placebo group. The primary outcome was 90-day all-cause mortality, and it was 43% in the hydrocort fludrocort group versus 49% in the placebo group, relative risk of 0.88, 95% confidence intervals of 0.78 to 0.99, p-value of 0.03. So that's different to the adrenal trial. Now certainly that's much higher baseline mortality, but they have shown a significant reduction. In terms of secondary outcomes, mortality was lower in the steroid group at ICU discharge, 35 versus 41%, hospital discharge, 39 versus 45%, and day 180, 46 52%. 
The hydrocort group had significantly shorter time to weaning from ventilation, weaning from vasopressors, and to reaching a surface score below 6. They had significantly more vasopressor-free days to day 28, and more organ failure-free days to day 28. 53% of the hydrocort fluducort group and 58% of the placebo group had at least one serious adverse event by day 180, but that wasn't significant, and the risk of gastroduodenal bleeding was not significantly different, nor was the risk of superinfection. Um, there was more hyperglycemia in the hydrocort fluducort group. So, in septic shock, 90-day all-cause mortality was lower among those who received hydrocortisone plus fludrocortisone than among those who received placebo. So now we've got adrenal in this study with over 5,000 patients and different primary outcomes. How do we make sense of it? So the adrenal 90-day mortality was 28% compared to 40-plus percent in this study. Maybe that is it. Maybe the different patients. This study had fludrocortisone. Maybe that made the difference. Adrenal had more surgical admissions, 32% versus 18%, less renal replacement therapy, 13% versus 28%, and less bacteremia, respiratory infection, and UTI, but a higher rate of abdominal infection, 26% in adrenal, 12% in this study, which is not surprising given the surgical differences. Um, and both reported more sh rapid shock resolution. So is it possible that sicker medical patients that we saw in this study uh, benefit more from steroids than the surgical abdominal patients we saw in the adrenal study? I'm not sure. And I think these two studies together perhaps raise more questions and don't resolve the steroid issue for us as we hoped they were. Still, it is two fantastic must-read additions to the literature and you and your ICU should be debating them at length. Okay, enough of steroids. Let's move on to something even less simple and that is delirium. And this was published in JAMA for the REDUCE study investigators, the effect of haloperidol on survival among critically ill adults with a high risk of delirium, the REDUCE RCT. So delirium is vexing intensivists, hospitalists, oncologists, subacute care providers worldwide with focus on prevention and treatment. So what is the effect of prophylactic haloperidol on survival among critically ill adults? This multi-center RCT enrolled 1,800 critically ill patients treated at 21 ICUs in the Netherlands from July 13 to December 16. The details, participants were considered high risk of delirium, that is anticipated ICU stay for greater than two days, excluding those with neurological conditions. The treatment arms are one to one to one. They got haloperidol, one milligram IV TDS within 24 hours to day 28. The second arm was haloperidol, two milligrams IV TDS within 24 hours to day 28, or ICU discharge for both arms, sorry, or placebo. And in common, they had non-pharmacological strategies plus rescue. At baseline, they were well matched. After the fourth interim analysis, the one milligram haloperidol group was stopped for futility. The primary outcome was number of days survived in 28 days. 
and that was 28 versus 28. 95% uh, confidence intervals were zero. <laughs> Hazard ratio was 1.003. The secondary outcome was number of days survived in 90 days. Delirium incidence, which was 33 versus 3%. Delirium and coma-free days. Duration of mechanical ventilation, ICU and hospital stay. Open label delirium treatment. Uh, and there was no difference in any of them. So the use of prophylactic haloperidol therapy did not improve survival among critically ill adults at high risk of delirium, or it did not improve the incidence of delirium, coma, hospital and ICU length of stay. The trial confirms that a third of patients with an ICU length of stay greater than 24 hours developed delirium, even with a structured set of non-pharmacological interventions. So, haloperidol isn't the answer. Okay, away from that, on to another big paper in the New England Journal of Medicine, which you may be debating in your units, and this was the Smart Investigators and the Pragmatic Critical Care Research Group, and it was Balanced Crystalloid Verse Saline in Critically Ill Adults. Now that's a question we've all been arguing over the last, well, decades, but particularly the last couple of years, what's better, balanced crystalloids or saline? This pragmatic cluster randomised multiple crossover trial conducted in five ICUs assigned 15,800 adults by ICU to receive saline at 0.9% or balanced crystalloids, lactated ringers or plasmolite. Now, patients received the trial fluid as all ICU fluid and ICUs changed between arms monthly. There was clear treatment separation in the fluid given and in the serum chloride and bicarbonate in the two different arms. The primary outcome was major adverse kidney event within 30 days, uh, a composite of death from any cause, new renal replacement therapy, or persistent renal dysfunction, which was defined as an elevation of the creatinine level to greater than 200% of baseline. The outcome was 14.3% in the balanced crystalloid group versus 15.4% in the saline group, with a marginal odds ratio of 0.91, 95% confidence intervals of 0.84 to 0.99, a p-value of 0.04. The secondary outcomes in hospital mortality at 30 days was 10.3% for balanced, 11.1% for the saline group, and that's not significant. New renal replacement therapy, 2.5 versus 2.9%, not significant persistent renal dysfunction, 6.4 versus 6.6%. So, among critically ill adults, the use of balanced crystalloids for IV fluid administration resulted in a 1.1% lower rate of the composite outcome of death from any cause, new renal replacement therapy or persistent renal dysfunction, than the use of saline. Now, although this is a small effect, Balanced crystalloid might prevent 1 in 94 ICU patients needing renal replacement therapy, a significant effect if applied to 5 million patients admitted annually. But this is a trial limited to the large Vanderbilt Medical Centre, so in effect it's a single centre study. And I think, as this gets debated internationally, we're going to 
probably end up feeling we need more evidence from a larger multi-centre study to provide external validity. But this is a great thought-provoking paper. Okay, let's move on to the JAMA and we have the effects of on-demand versus routine nebulization of acetylcysteine with salbutamol on ventilator-free days in intensive care unit patients receiving invasive ventilation. So do inhaled mucolytics benefit ventilated ICU patients? Uh, the question they ask is in patients receiving invasive ventilation is a strategy using on-demand nebulization of acetylcysteine or salbutamol inferior to using routine nebulization of acetylcysteine with salbutamol with respect to uh, ventilator free days and alive at day 28. They enrolled 922 ventilated ICU patients who expected not to be expired within 24 hours. The on-demand nebulization uh, of, of acetylcysteine was 300 milligrams with salbutamol 2.5 milligrams um, and that was given if wheezing was clinically suspected or, or observed with daily assessment of ongoing need. That's the on-demand group. The routine nebulization group got 300 milligrams of acetylcysteine and salbutamol 2.5 milligrams QID until not ventilated uh, and they were assigned the strategies for a maximum of 28 days. Participants were well matched at baseline and 15% of on-demand were excluded from per-protocol analysis because nebulization was given for reasons not reported. A total of 41% of patients in the on-demand group received nebulization. The primary outcome was VFDs and alive at 28 days and this was 20 in the routine group versus 21 on the on-demand group uh, and that met the non-inferiority margin of minus 0.5 days. The secondary outcomes included length of stay, mortality, ARDS, atelectasis, VAP etc and there was no difference. There was a difference in adverse events with the routine group experiencing more tachyarrhythmias, 26% versus 12%. So on demand nebulization was not inferior to routine nebulization of acetylcysteine with salbutamol. Now that doesn't really surprise many people I suspect but isn't there another question which is how do we know either of these are no better than placebo? Let's stick with JAMA and we have the effect of bag mask ventilation versus endotracheal intubation during CPR on neurological outcome after out-of-hospital cardiorespiratory arrest. Now you, you may remember last year we had that interesting paper in JAMA that looked at time to initiation for in-hospital cardiac arrest and associated outcomes. It was an incredibly well propensity matched study of 108,000 adult patients in 668 hospitals with in-hospital cardiac arrest and it looked at timed tracheal intubation and a time-dependent minute-by-minute propensity matching of non-intubated patients with intubated patients. Again, you may recall that overall they found no survival or neurological advantage of tracheal intubation in the first minute of CPR compared to any other minute in the first 15 minutes in adult in-hospital cardiac arrest. Now, of course, that was a retrospective study and despite propensity matching, there may be unaccounted confounders 
like what was the person managing the airway thinking when they decided to intubate. So although early tracheal intubation for adult in-hospital cardiac arrest doesn't seem advantageous, we cannot deduce the answer to the question, is bag mask ventilation okay in, in or out of hospital cardiac arrest? So this study gets us a little closer to the answer. This randomised parallel group, non-inferiority, two-country, Belgium and France, multi-centre trial, enrolled 2,043 patients with out-of-hospital cardiac arrest at the pre-hospital level from March 15 to Jan 17, and randomised, stratified by centre, to bag mask ventilation or endotracheal intubation. They were randomised at the scene of arrest if bag mask ventilation was not possible or massive regurgitation occurred, uh, endotracheal intubation was performed as a rescue therapy. ACLS was performed according to, according to guidelines. The groups were well matched at baseline. 72% had asystole, 3% got eCPR. The primary outcome was survival at day 28 with favourable neurological outcome, and that was a CPC of two or less and that was 4.3% in bag mask group and 4.2% in endotracheal intubation group, a difference that did not meet the non-inferiority margin. Secondary outcomes, ROSC was significantly increased in the ETI group, 39% versus 34%. Survival to hospital admission and day 28 did not differ and complications were increased in the bag mask group and significantly more pauses occurred in the bag mask group. And the complications uh, that increased in the bag mask group were uh, airway management difficulty and gastric regurgitation. So the authors conclude that the study findings are inconclusive for non-inferiority. Therefore, further research would be necessary to assess equivalence or superiority. What does it actually tell us? So, first of all, it tells us that 4% of patients had good outcomes and that's just a reminder of how bad out-of-hospital cardiac arrest outcomes are. The second is that there was no difference between bagged mask ventilation or ETI in terms of 28-day survival to a good outcome. And third is that there's a different pre-hospital journey. That is, the endotracheal intubation group have less complications, less airway complications more return of circulation, but by the time you get to hospital, but, but that doesn't equate to more survival. So you salvage more people at the scene, but you don't improve their outcomes. And that will be, no doubt, an interesting area that's debated by ambulance services and clinicians. Let's move away from adults and towards kids because we have got a New England Journal PICU paper, and that is a randomised trial of high-flow oxygen therapy in infants with bronchiolitis. So bronchiolitis is the most common reason for non-elective hospital admission in infants and an increasing cause of PICU admission, particularly in Australia and New Zealand. Current recommendations are for supportive therapy, oxygen for hypoxemia, respiratory support and hydration. The 
what is the best respiratory support has received a lot of interest with the advent of humidified high flow nasal cannula compared to say CPAP or mechanical ventilation, the traditional escalation treatments for bronchiolitis. This multi-center RCT tested whether early treatment with high flow in ED or the ward reduced the incidence of treatment failure leading to escalation of care. So what did they do? Well it was 17 ED and PED wards in Australia and New Zealand, infants less than 12 months of age who presented to ED with clinical bronchiolitis and a need for supplemental oxygen to keep the SATs greater than 92 or 94% depending on the hospital were included and they excluded infants who needed immediate ICU or had complex histories. In terms of interventions, they either got high flow, which is 2 litre per kilo per minute using the OptiFlow cannula and the AirVo2, the Fisher and Paykel product that many of us use, um, and they adjusted oxygen for SATs of 92 to 98%, and they were allowed to wean down to 21%. Or there was the standard arm, which was nasal cannula, 2 litres a minute aiming for SATs of 92 to 98%. Entral feeding was recommended and they got routine care otherwise. The primary outcome, so treatment failure that resulted in escalation of care during that hospital admission, and this was defined as three of four clinical criteria. One, heart rate remained unchanged or increased, so a decrease of greater than five beats per minute was considered a success. Two, respiratory rate unchanged or increased, with a decrease of greater than five breaths per minute as success. Three, an FiO2 in a high flow nasal cannula of greater than 0.4 or in standard needing greater than two litres per minute to maintain SATs. And four, a met call. And remember, met calls can occur for a whole lot of reasons. The results, 1,638 infants were enrolled, groups were similar at baseline. The primary outcome, which is treatment failure, occurred in 12% in the high flow group, 23% in the standard group, absolute difference minus 11%, p-value of less than 0.001, number needed to treat of 9. Now, the effect was age-independent, and interestingly, the effect differed between sites who had an ICU on site and those who didn't. So in those who had an ICU on site, the high flow group had an escalation of care in 14% versus 20% in standard, and those without an ICU on site, it was 7% for high flow and 28% for standard. And that was independent of the history of prematurity or prior hospital admission. That is, it wasn't just because hospitals without ICUs get less sick kids. Now the most common reason for escalation was met and there was no difference in hospital length of stay, ICU length of stay or duration of oxygen therapy. All infants in the standard group required escalating, requiring escalation received high flow as their first line and 61% of these responded, 39% was ineffective and were transferred to ICU. Overall 1% was intubated and that was no different between the high flow and the standard group. So overall, early high flow and bronchiolitis resulted in less clinical escalation than standard nasal cannula. However, there was no difference in ICU or hospital length of stay or requirement for intubation and mechanical ventilation, as far as I can see. So this could be interpreted as both pathways are effective 
early high flow or standard nasal cannula plus escalation to high flow for deterioration. That'll, again, it'll be interesting to see how this is discussed and debated in the PICU world and in regional ICUs that look after adults and kids. Let's finish up with an important viewpoint published in JAMA recently by Julie Biley. This, well, it's a piece of my mind, carefully and sensitively addresses an important issue. She says, I worry about the women who will miss out on the mentorship of well-intentioned men who fear being accused of mistreatment. And I worry about the women who will be passed over because it's simply easier for men to supervise men during this challenging time. And I worry that progress towards gender equity with leadership opportunities for women will regress. And this is called mentoring in the era of hashtag me too. Perhaps most importantly, the author gives us some sound advice on what excellent male mentorship looks like. And this is what she says. One, in my presence they demonstrate exemplary professional behaviour during and outside of the workday, never compromised by alcohol consumption or flirtatious interactions. Two, they always behave comfortably but as if others are watching, demonstrating integrity. Three, though they have warm personalities, they refrain from physical touch, except in larger social settings where they may give hugs and greeting. Four, they never mention anything about my appearance or the appearance of others, and they avoid generalizing comments about gender. Five, they text me important or urgent things, and sometimes just very funny things, but never anything I wouldn't share with my husband or their wives. Six, I know I am in the club because of their warmth and friendship as well as the content of our conversations, but I do not perceive their club as a stereotypical boys club where I am not welcome. 7. Most importantly, my male mentors have chosen to speak up to support women while other men have chosen to sit quietly or worse, offend. And she ends by saying, those who have experienced sexual harassment must be fully and actively supported. Harassment must be brought to light and eliminated. Concurrently, championing, di championing diversity and inclusion has never been more important. A diverse community of leaders can create a more supportive, respectful culture. To that end, building mentoring relationships across lines that sometimes divide us must be encouraged. I think that's a great place for us to stop for this Journal Club podcast. See you soon.